dogs in the yard Might need a guard Every loss taken to heart Me first, that cannot be Must be these underdog episodes, see? Feeling much better, so suddenly Under the Monica, Monica G Crafted at night while all of them sleep I won't look a fool Taking this tool, defeating the opposition around me No, no, I'm not sorry Yes, I'm taking this knowledge and party Just barking, no harm, don't be startled Yes, I'm taking the title And it's so vital Thanks for the ride, I'll never be idle Turn up the dial, it's about to get wild And the points go Dallas the underdog bite down Up at the day and the night now Easy as flying a kite now Come take a look at it right now Dallas the underdog bite down Up at the day and the night now Easy as flying a kite now Come take a look at it right now Welcome to episode 107 of Dynasty Underdog Billy Beeman here Got Uriah and Josh with me as usual but this week, we got another special guest. We've been bringing a bunch of guests on recently. And uh, this week, we got at Chris Miles 1017 on Twitter. You may know him on there as DFF Draft Director. What's going on, Chris? How you doing, man? Uh, nothing much. Having a good night. Just, you know, ready to talk some football with people that know football. <laughs> well, let's go. <laughs> we, we at least act like we do here. That's yeah. for sure. That's for sure. So, yeah, Chris is actually a writer at DFF with me. Been there for a while. Does great, great work. I advise everybody to go check out his stuff and all of his stuff on Twitter, not just his his articles with us. But you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into Dynasty and writing and that whole thing? Like, how long have you been playing Dynasty? Yeah, sure. I uh, started Dynasty when I was a senior in high school. I've been playing Redraft for a couple of years, and I'd found the Fantasy Life app when it, like, first got started. And that's where I like learned what a dynasty league was. And I was like, oh, I'm super into football, super into like math and statistics and stuff. So I was like, yes, this is what I need to do. <laughs> so then I joined a dynasty league and then you joined a couple more dynasty leagues. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I was like, I need to learn, you know, how to get better. So I got on Twitter and then I was like, okay, I started doing my own stuff, started posting my own tweets and stuff. And then eventually someone asked me to write for them. So that's when I like started writing and was I you know enjoyed doing that and trying to help people. And then Paul told me that about DFF and that's how I joined that site. Yeah, I remember Paul saying, oh, I got a buddy who I think would be perfect for this. And you ended up coming in and you were, man. Like you're you're exactly what we needed and uh, a great mind in, in the industry. I think like I'd love to know a little bit about your process, right? Because everybody has a different process. Some people are film people, some people are are data people so i guess how do you approach the game like what what is your how do you go about when you go to write an article are you looking at it what from what perspective yeah so definitely in general i'm very data-based like analytics i want to know you know the probabilities of certain things happening and you know try to get my roster to have the best probability to be as good as it's going to be um when it comes to rookies in particular i definitely start with a data side, I get their, you know, analytical profile set up. And then I want to find the people that I trust in the film space and match that up. So like if my analytics like them and film likes them, huge, you know, green flag, I'm targeting this player. If a player has, you know, bad data, but, you know, a lot of respected film people like them in film, I mean, that can bump them up. If they have good data and bad film, you know, that can bring them up too. But then when they have bad data, bad film, that's just a straight avoid. So even though it comes from a data side at the start, I'm not like ignoring film and it's definitely used. Okay. You know, a lot of people I think who discuss this stuff with, with people who focus on data are always kind of get stuck on how do you account for context, right? Like when you're looking at data and then a guy's been injured or a guy, you know, entered college late, like how do you adjust for that? Do you account for that? Or, you know, how does that, I guess, get added into your process if at all yeah so my model doesn't take any of that into account really it just takes straight you know ones and zeros there's no subjectivity to it at all it's looked at each player the same way over and over so that's how you can have a consistent process and get consistent results but then when i go to do like rankings i definitely have context and stuff like that but you need to be careful too because you know last year Terrace Marshall had like, you know, an average analytical profile. And everybody was like, okay, well, he's playing with, you know, Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson, who are two of, you know, the best wide receivers in football right now. So they're like, okay, we can kind of, you know, give him an excuse. And then, you know, look what happens his rookie year. He completely flops. He's kind of dead in dynasty now. So I do apply context, but you need to be careful about it. 
like the root of what the analytics says is usually pretty good. I, I, I asked that question because I, I actually think as somebody who, you know, kind of grinds data for, for my daily job, you know, I kind of realized that context is almost built in if you have a, a good sample size, right? If you have a good sample size and you're looking at historical data, generally the context is built in, right? Because if you have a bunch of, you know, 19 year old guys who perform really well because they're young and a bunch of 21 year old guys who, you know, are the same, same year in college and they don't perform really well historically. And those like, doesn't it just kind of work itself out, right? That's kind of how I like to think about it. You know, it doesn't matter why it doesn't matter if they were injured. It doesn't matter if they were sick, it doesn't matter if their mom held them back. It doesn't matter. The numbers don't care in the long run. You're playing the odds, right? So I think maybe a lot of people kind of get hung up on that and don't realize that it's more about setting yourself up at a really good starting point by playing the odds. And then you can kind of work from there. And if you want to add context, more context, if you want to add whatever your personal feelings are in from there, that's on you. And maybe that makes you better or worse <laughs> within your process. Right. But, um, but yeah, I just wanted to ask that question because I feel like we've had a lot of conversations recently in our DFF chat on Twitter. I've seen a lot of this stuff, you know, whether it's Rashad white, whether it's, you know, a, a battle about the top two wide receivers, it's, it's something, you know, where people get hung up on, well, you're just looking at the the numbers too literally and i and i don't know if that's necessarily the case yeah i completely agree with that i actually have it written down here like exactly i don't include further outside influences because data captures context itself i love that it goes through like every player that I said that so much faster than i did it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like succinct very nice <laughs> yeah that's because you know i was really studying this show sheet but um <laughs> yeah like it captured it has data is included in every player that entered college as a 19 year old it's included every player that's a late declare. Okay, you know, Chris Olave went back because he wanted to win a championship. Well, it includes every late declare that went back because he wanted to win a championship, you know? So that's why, like exactly you said, adding the further context almost double counts it. Sure does. Do you, uh, in your model, do you take into account draft capital? I do. I do take on dra count draft capital. Draft capital is, you know, the most heavily weighted thing in my model. It's It sucks to admit that, you know, the NFL evaluators are, maybe right more than we are, but draft <laughs> capital is the best indicator of future NFL success. How did you decide that that was going to be one of the main inputs with the higher weights in your model? So the way I do my model actually is I have each player and I have their points per game in each of their first three seasons uh, with a 10 game minimum. And if they hit like 16 points per game in two of their first three seasons and they're an elite hit, if they hit 13 points per game in two of their first three, they're a good hit. 10 plus points per game in two of their first three, they're a soft hit. And then if they don't meet any of those, they're a miss. So then now that I have all the players, so I have every player drafted since 2013 in my database. So I go and I take all those players and all, you know, their level of hit and grade it against the metric I want to look at. So like for draft capital, I'll be like, okay, well, how many players were drafted in the first round? And then how many were elite hits, how many were good hits, how many were soft hits, how many were misses. And I do that for each metric I look at. And that's what determines to me which one is the most correlative to the future because the future NFL success, because if a player doesn't hit in their first three seasons, they're dead. So that's why I don't really look past that. So I just, I feel like that's, that, that's at least what I do for my model. I love that. I, 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 don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. How did you feel about Rondale more last year? So Rondale, let's I love see. the guy. I got to talk about him. <laughs> Rondale, he had a decent profile and then he had a kind of disappointing freshman season, but it's not terrible. He's not like dead in the water or anything. He's going to have an increased role this year. I mean, if he can hit, you know, 10 points per game, he can at least make it into the, you know, one of the overall hit categories. Yeah. With Hopkins suspended and with basically only Marquise as like a real competitor for targets, I mean, he should be able to do pretty good this year. Okay. We had a, a long debate go on in the, the, the Dynasty Football Factory chat the other day between a couple of our writers and Chris got in there and got involved. And I thought it just brought up I, – I felt like after the conversation – it was important to go over why breakout age is important 
again, right? Like Dynasty Underdog here, we want to help people who are newer and people who have been doing this. And sometimes we forget what the hell these things are and why we care about them. Mm -hmm. And so I thought maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about if it's, you know, how, how it's weighted in your model and why it's important. Right. So let's just look at, so my hit, so my hit rate categories, I have like elite, good and soft. So let's say like an overall hit is one of those three categories. And then I have an EG hit, which is elite or good. So for day one wide receivers since 2013, if they were 20 years old or younger when they broke out, their EG hit rate is 45%. If they were older 20 than 21 when they broke out, their EG hit rate is 11%. <laughs> so That's we significant. Can see that. damn. Yeah. I mean, if you hit that one statistic, well, draft capital plus that one statistic, if you hit BOA or breakout age, if you were under 20, you quadruple your chance of being an elite or good player. You know, 13 points per game, that's a wide receiver too. That's kind of what we strive for. And then, so that's, you know, that's just like a really telling sign to me that, you know, breakout age is important, especially at the elite level. Okay. No, that's, that's huge. And for the audience and for us maybe too what what is breakout age like what does it include so breakout age is the age at which a college player hits a 20 percent dominator rating and a dominator rating is some sites do it differently i use player profilers dominator ratings they do the dominator rating is just the percentage of a team's receiving yards and touchdowns that a player had i'm not sure how they weight touchdowns and yards, they have to be, you know, one has to be weighted more than the other. I would assume they weight uh, yards more because yards are more predictive, more, you know, they're more consistent, but they don't release that information. So um, all I just, all I can say is that, you know, it's the basically market share of yards and touchdowns among their individual team. Pretty much the market share of the team's total offensive production. Yep. Basically. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. I think, and, and, it was brought up in the chat that, you know, touchdowns are random, but I, I think that that is, you know, that's simplifying it too much in that, Way you know, much. first of all, the, the formula weights both yards and touchdowns, right? So that's massively important. And, and like you said, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they, they weight the, the yards more than touchdowns regardless. That does, no matter what you want to think, it doesn't change the fact that it's a, it's a very predictive metric at this point, right? By the numbers yeah. historically. And, you know, it doesn't matter if, again, it doesn't matter if the reason that you were 20 when you broke out or 21 when you broke out was because you couldn't have been in college before then or whatever it is, right? You were held back, whatever it is. Like, it doesn't matter. Those factors don't necessarily matter. I mean, maybe in, in small instances, you can you can adjust for that. But I think that overall the numbers just bear that stuff out. And I think that that's kind of where the argument was, was getting lost, I think. And, uh, and yeah, I just, you know, people who, who kind of want to defy the numbers, it's fine. You can, but like, I think the best thing to do is at least understand them the best you can so that you can at least apply them the way you'd like to. Yeah. And I mean, dominator rating, I have some numbers here for that too. You know, if you're drafted day one, and you have a 35% or higher dominator rating, the chance that you are an elite or good hit is 42%. And if you are under 35% dominator rating, there have been zero elite or good hits since 2013 that were drafted in the first round and didn't hit my dominator rating threshold. (laughs) That's important, I think. What a lot of like what Billy was saying about like when you went to like say you didn't get to college your freshman year and you were you know 20 years old you didn't get on the field until like you're 21 but you had like you dominated what we're kind of forgetting or not mentioning right now is it has a lot to do with the the human build if you're a 19 year old kid dominating against 21 year old men right, you know their bodies are more formed their bodies are more in shape they've been in the weight room more years that's telling you hey man this kid's special he's only going to go up. If you wait until you're 21 and you're bodying 19 year old freshman. Yeah. You might've like, you know, had 10, 10 touchdowns and 1400 yards, but you're playing against like lesser level talent because you're bigger and stronger. You don't really, you've already kind of peaked in college. So I think that's kind of one of the important parts about 
dominating young, it's saying, hey, man, you're doing it at this level. You're only going to get bigger, faster, stronger. And that's typically what you see in the NFL. Thinking about this with breakout age and, and the predictiveness of it, right? If we're looking at two prospects like London and Burks, right? Uh, sorry, let me step back. Uh, Traylon Burks and Drake London, right? If we're looking at these two, that both drafted in the first round, both very you know, talented players, high-end prospects, touted throughout the whole offseason. London has a much better chance of hitting, right? Compared to a guy like Traylon Burks, just by the numbers alone. Because didn't Traylon Burks break out age 21-ish? Yeah, so Traylon was a 20 and a half. I wouldn't say much better. I wouldn't say that London has a much better chance, but I would say he has a objectively better chance. Fair enough. I have some, like, my percent chance of, you know, hitting based on their profiles. It's kind of like a comp tool, but it just takes the their um, profile and gives you a percent chance whether they're being a soft hit or elite hit. Mm-hmm. So for London, I have him as, you know, basically a hundred percent chance of being a player that will average <laughs> 10 points per game over his first three seasons and a 90% chance of being a player that will average 13 or more points per game over his thir- first three seasons. And then for Traylon Burks, those same numbers are 88% and 71%. Okay. So there's still good numbers. I mean, you know, yeah. Drake, don't, don't get me wrong. Tra- Tra- Drake London and Traylon Burks are my wide receiver one and two of the class. I'm not here to say Traylon Burks isn't good. It's just that Drake London, analytically speaking, is objectively better. Yeah. I agree. I just wanted to round that out with some like some applicable information, you know, how you can kind of look at prospects. Those are some of the two highest touted wide receivers in the class. Right. So I, I wanted to kind of put them side by side there. So I think that's how you have to approach it, because when you're looking at these two guys, like if you put that into practice, you can say, and, and it's not just those two guys, you can look at it, you know, throughout the whole, the whole rookie class. But if you, if you approach it that way, you can definitely, I think, set yourself up for better success, right. By, taking the guys who are closer to hundred percent hits in that respect than not and ignoring it. I mean, at that high level might not matter because like you said, Traylon Burke still has a very high percentage chance of hitting. It might not matter if you ignore it there and, and go Burks, right? Like he'll probably be fine. But when you kind of go down to pick 10 and beyond, or let's say you, I think those things really matter. Those, you know, we're looking at, let, I mean, let's hop into it, right? Let's jump off of, of just talking about your process, Chris, and let's talk into, jump into some of the news and nonsense, but kind of related, right? Damian Pierce. This guy is all over the Twitter space, all over the news. <laughs> He's rising up ADP like crazy. But analytically speaking, he probably isn't a very good bet to hit, right? Like a fourth-round draft pick, didn't get much college production. Yeah, no, he's not. And I do the same thing for running backs, actually, that I do for wide receivers. Okay. So – my model spit out a number for Damian Pierce to average 13 points per game in his two of his first three seasons. He has an 11% chance. That's just based on his strictly analytical profile. And I will say being drafted 4.02 definitely affects that a lot. If he had been drafted, you know, 3.32 instead, that would change that number. But the fact of the matter is he was drafted in the fourth round. And there have been a lot of 4.01s and 4.02s and 4.03s that haven't been good. I got a question there. Yeah. What I'm thinking about, you know, because <clears throat> everything changes in the NFL and how they play. You see the wide receivers are a little bit smaller. Uh, after we went through a phase of defensive backs getting bigger and bigger, it seems like the NFL is changing to like a little bit smaller, shiftier guys, unless that prototypical six foot two, 220 X. But we're also seeing the NFL value running backs a little less you see less guys going in the first round maybe one running back in the first round zero running backs in the first round you know do you think that we as you know quote unquote talent evaluators who you know we play around and act like we're scouts and do you think we need to take into account that maybe a running back taken 402 is more similar to what we're looking at historically would previously have been like, you know, a, a high third. Do you think we're going to have to adjust for that uh, coming up in the near, near years? Yeah. So I don't think so, really. The only thing I've done is I've counted the second round the same as the first round. 
um, because we, I mean, we see like, you know, Brees Hall was, you know, not a generational prospect or anything, but he was a very good prospect. He still won the second round. And, you know, like last year we saw players that are good, getting, like DeAndre Swift getting, you know, getting drafted in the second round, J.K. Dobbins getting drafted in the second round. Um, I would say that there is still a break between day two and day three. And I have looked at like the last, I don't have the data in front of me, but I have looked at the last three draft classes in particular and just looked at still the hit rates for day two, day three backs compared to what it is overall in my uh, database, which goes back to 2013. And they're still about the same for running backs. So while we have seen that shift and have seen running backs go later, it's still about the coaches seeing the draft capital they spent on them and wanting to use them, you know, because a running back, he doesn't have to earn his touches or anything. He gets put on the field and the play gets called, he gets handed the ball. So if the coaches don't have a high investment in a player, they might be biased to think he's not as good right there and just not give him the ball. Great answer. Makes sense. Yeah, it's super interesting. So Damian Pierce is a guy who I imagine you've just like avoided at all costs, whether it's in draft, like rookie drafts after you just, you're off of guys like that, right? So, and in like May and April, yeah, I was completely off Damian Pierce. But there was a time in like, you know, July, let's say, where I was drafting Damian Pierce in like best ball leagues. I mean, he was going in like round 13. You know, he was a potential starting running back. But then, you know, once August hit and, you know, the training camp and preseason, yeah, his price has skyrocketed. But I will also say I do regret completely avoiding him. Mm-hmm. I really feel like I should have been taking him at least at ADP when given the opportunity in rookie drafts because, I mean, he gets traded for 23 firsts all the time now. And that's something that I missed out on because I refuse to take a player at ADP when we need to recognize that ADP is usually pretty good. Yep. I, I love that. I love that admission because I feel the same way about it too. He's And he was a guy who I like from a film perspective a lot. And I avoided him anyway, just just because I, I didn't like the analytical side of it. I like some other guys in that range, but those running backs, man, they can, they can rise in value at such a, a, a crazy rate. Like you said, we see him right now, 23 first round picks, you know, are gold and he's being traded for those. And I, I, I'd be all on board with that. I'd love to get that. But we also saw another running back and we're going to hop into this news here. This is really unfortunate news. We saw another running back rise up the ranks. Similarly, uh, Brian Robinson out of Alabama, the, the now Washington commanders running back. Uh, he, he was looking really good, but he was named the starter. And then we got news that he was shot in an attempted carjacking. Yep. Carjacking. So yeah, he was shot multiple times. It said lower body, uh, obviously first and foremost, you know, really just care about his health. It sounds like he's going to be okay, but we are a dynasty fantasy football podcast. So we're going to talk about the impact of this, right? We have to. Uh, so, so yeah, no, no shade on Brian Robinson or, or his condition, but let's talk a little bit about it. What happens now, right? I mean, this is another guy who was a later drafted player, rose up. I, I kind of wish I, I drafted a lot of him too, because he was in like the third round of rookie drafts. He was later than Damian Pierce and, and kind of got the same treatment as he, as he secured goal. But what do we feel about Antonio Gibson? That's the news here, honestly, to me. I'll just say, I don't think Brian Robinson loses his job because he got shot. Like, I think that when he comes back and he's healthy, they're going to give him the opportunity to play unless Antonio Gibson just absolutely dominates as a running back, which we've never really seen that happen before. So how, let's start with you, Chris, how do you feel about Antonio Gibson? So Antonio Gibson, it was that week that right before Brian Robinson had, you know, the unfortunate incident, um, Antonio Gibson was going in the hundreds on underdog. And I was drafting him in every draft I was in at that point. I mean, he still, you know, has produced, shown proven production in the NFL. He has a you know pretty good profile. And if anything, he's going with other handcuffs where, you know, if Brian Robinson or JD McKissick or whoever got hurt, then, you know, Gibson's in a great role. So if Gibson's ADP can stay, you know, around like the seventh or eighth, maybe eighth round, I could see myself maybe drafting him a couple spots, but I do want to say about Brian Robinson. Um, I saw multiple reports saying that he wasn't hit in, you know, any tendons or muscles or joints. So, you know, it's just a 
straight through flesh wound. So he should be, you know, back this season. Um, and as a, you know, as a rookie profile standpoint, I actually had him as my running back six post-draft. And he was my, my model also spits out an expected fantasy points per game as a rookie. He was number three in the class for my model. So I was really high on him. I actually drafted a lot of him in rookie drafts and I'm excited for him to return to the field. Didn't, where was he drafted in the third round? Okay. So I guess that third round helped him out in your pro in your, uh, in your model. That's yep, fair. Snuck in there at the end. And Hey, if you get Gibson in the eighth, ninth round, you can get those punt return touchdown points too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty same already back up. He was already back at the Rocks facility and everything. It, I think was a shot to his glute or something. So hopefully he comes back. Yeah. I, I think it's important to point out, you know, Quote, he obviously made the 53-man roster this week, and I don't think they have him on, like, IR or anything kind of crazy like that. It seems like no, he's going to like recover pretty quickly. Uh, he's a little butt sore, but I think he'll be okay. It's just, yeah, um, if you get Gibson that late, you know, I think that's perfectly fine. But as soon as Brian Robinson's able to, it's his job. Like, I think we've pointed it out on this podcast a lot of times. He, uh, Antonio Gibson, was never the the plan to begin with you know they drafted him they had Darius Geis and then his first year he split carries with uh, I don't remember what his name is uh Barber you know pretty much Barber out snapped him his next year he just they never really wanted to feature Antonio Gibson as the starter they found Brian Robinson Brian Robinson looked a lot better in preseason than Antonio Gibson did Antonio Gibson went out there fumbled on the first snap and he didn't see another play and now he's relegated to punt duties he kind of, uh, from his standpoint, kind of looked into a starting role for now. But as soon as Brian Robinson's back healthy, it's going to be his job. And I have no doubt about that. Good stuff there, guys. Okay, close to Josh's heart. If, if you don't know, yes, Chris, sir. Josh is Najee <laughs> yes. true through, through and through, and there's nothing <laughs> that can stop him. Anybody concerned about the reported Najee Harris-Liz Frank injury with, with the volume that he gets? It said he had it in camp. I know he played in the preseason game. Uh, anybody concerned about that at all? Honestly, no. Mainly because of the fact he played through it. Okay. If if it was that serious, I, he would not be playing in a meaningless preseason game. I mean, he's a bonafide. Nothing can stop this train for Josh. I know. Nothing. I, I knew Josh would be like, no, that's not, not true. Worried. That doesn't that's matter. not true at all. <laughs> he gets to say a real injury, but uh, uh, him fucking around in the preseason, it doesn't matter. Okay, When cool. the season starts, we'll see what's up. Yeah, I'm not worried about it either, really. I think it hasn't been – he hasn't missed any time, like Josh said. You know, he's playing in the preseason – it's being managed. Everybody's a little hurt during the season too. So, I mean, if he goes in a little hurt and stays a little hurt and plays full snaps, then, I mean, I'm into it. Sounds good. Love it. Love it. Nobody's worried about Najee. All right. I guess he's just going to carry the ball 500 times and be fine. I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all you guys say. So I'm, I'm just worried. That's all. I am. Yeah. I we, we, we did do a little, a little mini study about, about the running back carries and, and his workload is pretty unsustainable. So he's going to have to see some sort of dip. I, I don't, I don't know if this injury matters though. I'm, I'm kind of with you guys. All right, let's move on. LaVisca Chenault traded to Carolina. Does this breathe life into Visca? Chris, I mean, let's, let's start with you from your models perspective. Does he have any sort of, any sort of life in him? Oh man, uh, LaVisca did not have any life in him <laughs> on the Jags, and yeah. he still is, you know, 75% dead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One foot in the grave, pretty much. Maybe two. Yeah, <sighs> um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really all I got on him. You're like, I can't do anything to spin this, uh, spin this for Visca. Is anybody else interested? Your IR, Josh. No. <laughs> uh no, I mean I like Visca, but um I kinda I kinda want to look at the Jaguars uh depth chart and what are they doing? Like, I mean, they have Marvin Jones. It's Christian Kirk, that's it. Jay Jones and then the million dollar man Christian Kirk. Like it's supposed to have this generational quarterback, and this is who they're giving him the throw to. Like you can't just like keep Visca because like maybe he could be useful. I don't understand it. I, I you know, I don't know. Doesn't make any sense. The the skill set that he has, you would think that any capable coaching staff could figure out a way to use him, but they just they just didn't. They said, "Hey, we'll just ship him off to Carolina." Here you go, Baker. Have fun. I mean, if we want to get crazy, I do have some comps for Lavisca based on his NFL career so far. Let's go. It's like it's gonna be ugly. Let's go. So 
in his first year, he did eclipse 10 points per game. But in his second season, he did not. And I have two other players who did that since 2013. They are Hunter Renfro and Darius Slayton. So one of them went on to do 15 points per game in their third season. And the other one went on to do five points per game in their third season. So that's where my 75% dead. That's that's LaVisca. I'm sorry, but Baker is not is not Derek Carr, and and I don't think that he's going to hone in on a guy like Visca that way. So I, I unfortunately I just don't see it. I just don't. Yeah, see he's a lot closer to Daniel Jones, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I feel so bad for him. All right, how about we have another trade? This is interesting. Jalen Rager to the Vikings, who I think just lost BC Johnson. So I'm I'm wondering if, if he's maybe a BC Johnson replacement, which is a massive indictment on former first round pick Jalen Rager. But does the, do the Vikings give him any shot? Like, can can he, I guess, test KJ Osborne for his role at all? That was an insult to old BC Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. All right. So so no life for for Jalen Rager either. I mean, I figured the the former first round maybe the draft capital gave him some some longevity, but I, I guess not. I mean, I wasn't a fan of Rager when he came out either. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not too interested, but I do think it's an interesting landing spot. Like the Vikings are, are a good offense at the very least. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I mean, I don't know. He got hit in the face so many times with the Eagles. I don't know if it matters what offense he's in. Yeah. I just, I don't see the Vikings offense, no matter how much more improved they're going to be to be able to sustain a viable Jalen Rager. Like, it is what it is. He's just a guy there. I think they did let uh, Amir Smith Marset or whatever. I think they let him go. Mm-hmm. They uh, did. That that was kind of one of those guys that certain dark corners of the Tortoisers were were high on, but uh, he's no longer with the Vikings. And Jalen Rager is. And I was high on Jalen Rager coming out. Um, I'm with the group of people that kind of egg on my face, but it is what it is. All right. I actually I do have a little bit of data here on Rager if you want to hear it. Cool. Yes. Drop it. Drop it. So he did not hit 10 points per game in either of his first two seasons. I have 87 players who did that in my database. Only two of them went on to have a 10-point-per-game season. That is not very good odds. That's not what you want to hear. Were they any any notable players or no? So it was Devontae Adams and Tyler Boyd. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's not Devontae Adams, I'll tell you that right now. Right. Devontae Adams is the outlier. He's always the guy where if you started your career bad, oh, he's going to be Devontae Adams. No. Yeah, I know. Yeah. No one's Devontae Adams. Literally like the one guy. (laughs) I guess I have to ask, like, what are your thoughts on Gabe Davis? Because he is obviously the next Devontae Adams, if you ask anybody. Yeah, I mean, Gabe Davis, same same exact thing. He didn't hit 10 points per game in either of his first two seasons. So I just don't see – he is in a really good situation, but he's just not a target earner. His target rate per outrun is just not good, you know. So he's had as a 10% target share in each of his first two seasons. He actually got worse in his second season. If you look at the volume, like the raw numbers, I just – he's going to – he could be, you know, a 10-point-per-game, 11-point-per-game player, but he's not going to be, you know, wide receiver 15 or anything. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, some sense, bringing some sense some to this. sense to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. We need okay, it. okay. Anybody excited about Sony Michelle signing with the Los Angeles Chargers? I think this throws some cold water on Joshua Kelly, who is who's kind of rising up. I, I grabbed him in a few places off waivers. Uh, you know, the backup to to uh, Austin Eckler is is I think pretty valuable. And now there's kind of multiple of them there. I mean, Sony Michelle probably better than Joshua Kelly. I mean. Maybe not at this age, but I think he he might be. Yeah, uh, I think it definitely kills Josh Kelly. Like, he definitely gets relegated back a spot in the depth chart. And then I'm not sure how the Chargers are feeling about Spiller or not. I don't know if he's been looking good. I haven't been seeing the camp news, but the vibes I was getting were that they were kind of disappointed. So this could be, you know, a hit to Spiller, too. Most definitely. If Sonny Michelle's coming in there, I mean, especially with um... – Spiller getting the injury preseason, not really playing that much. Does not look good to start the season out. Yeah. And we have to remember, you know, Spiller was a day three pick. You know, it's, they, I mean, we've seen day three picks come in, be really good and get replaced. So, you know, if Spiller comes in as a day three pick and is mediocre, I mean, he could definitely get replaced. Absolutely. Yeah. I, 
I saw the news where it's like Josh Kelly's the clear cut number two. And my one share of him was like rejoicing. I'm like, sweet. I got the backup to Austin Eckler, which is valuable. And then it's literally like two days later, they're like, yes, yeah, Sonny Michelle cut by Miami. Before he even went to bed the next night, he's he's signed by the Chargers. I'm like, okay, well, shit. <laughs> but yeah, honestly, Joshua Kelly, he doesn't look good when he's running the ball. So that is what it is. Yeah, I, I don't think Sony Michelle was a good fit for what Miami's trying to do in the run game. So I think it might have been more about that. I'm not, I've actually, I, on this podcast, I've said many times, I cannot stand the way that Sony Michelle runs either. I think his gait is like terrible and, and I don't think it it helps being an effective running back in the NFL, but he's been pretty good when he's behind a good offensive line and in a good running scheme. So I don't see why he can't steal touches from Joshua Kelly or Austin Eckler, especially on the goal line. So yeah, a little bit worried. I mean, I think we were worried anyway about Eckler's touchdown regression, but this definitely is going to hurt like anything on the one, two yard line. I, I think they'll probably just save Eckler and, and throw Michelle in there and bash his head into the line four times. So yeah, could hurt him there. Uh, either way, we can move on. So this is what I wanted to talk about because I think as dynasty players who play mainly super flex, this is super important and we talk about it every year. And I think, I know myself, I didn't take our own advice coming into this year, but Malik Willis, right? I want to talk about Malik Willis because all it took was one game of him looking halfway mediocre, running around, a 30 yard plus play throwing a touchdown to Traylon Burks and his, his value has risen significantly. We're, you know, hearing talks of, you know, all, all it takes is Ryan Tannehill perform underperforming or, you know, them realizing that Malik Willis is better suited for the offense that they're running and, and he can get the starting job as, as early as this year. I, I, maybe I just want to vent here and, and maybe Chris, you can derive something from here to talk about <laughs> from, from a data perspective, but like, I really do think we continue to fade quarterbacks and super flex and I continue to get burnt by it. Whether it's Desmond Ritter or Malik Willis, these guys are gaining value. And at the very least like Damian Pierce, maybe I'm not in on the player long-term, but I'm definitely in on grabbing that, that value ascension and moving it to somebody else. And I keep losing out on that because I want to take Wandale Robinson. Maybe that's what you'll take from this, Chris. You can talk about Wandale Robinson <laughs> in the second instead of Malik Willis. So I, I mean, how do you feel about that? Is it, would you have done it? Would you have faded Willis again because of the draft capital, or have you been fading him? Do you think it was a smart decision? Would you have grabbed him earlier if you had, you know, a chance again? Yeah. So with Malik Willis, first of all, I don't want to, you know, admit defeat on anything yet. It's still the preseason. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> wasn't like, I mean, Geno Smith was like the number one PFF graded QB in the preseason. I don't really know how much that means. I mean, Malik Willis in my, because I have a quarterback model too. It's still kind of in the works, but it's like 80% done. Um, Malik Willis would have been QB six last year for my model, you know, behind Zach Wilson. I just don't, I think it was correct to not draft him in the first round. I think his eight, he, what, he got drafted like mid second, most, most drafts around there. I think that's fine. I drafted him once or twice. I don't think it was incorrect to fade him. I think that the NFL saw these QBs, they didn't like them, and they really showed us they didn't like them. And I think that we need to listen to that, and we can take the time and see with Malik Willis what he does. But I wouldn't say we've been wrong just yet. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's just uh, playing off the hit rates and draft capital and all those other things that matter to us when we're looking at this. There was always another player that, to me, had a much better chance of hitting and becoming fantasy dynasty relevant when I, you know, there at the 203, the 206 range, it just was never Malik Willis because he went so, so damn late and the team he went to and et cetera, et cetera. I have zero shares and yeah, I got like a little bit of FOMO right now because, you know, he, his value has gone up, but it seems like you can't just draft all the quarterbacks because we're in super flex. So you have to take into context, like when they got drafted. That's how I ended up with uh, some picket shares, which I may or may not enjoy having, but the, the chances. I think he looks histor- fine. <laughs> yeah. I think picket looks fine, dude. <laughs> Historically, a guy like, uh, uh, I think a guy like Pickett's going to have opportunity to actually play and be, you know, a starting quarterback uh, sooner than a guy like Malik Willis, who may or may not, I don't know. NFL said they didn't really like him. So I kind of uh, 
I kind of avoided him. Yes, I would like to have some of him to trade away, but yeah. I've been high on him since I got him in my campus to Canton League uh, two years ago. I'm just, I picked up a couple more shares of his where I could, but hey, you got to ride the wave sometimes. If you look back at the data when Brady came out, hypothetically, let's say, and he ran through a model, he probably would have gone third, fourth round in most drafts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and he probably should have. Like, <laughs> yeah, you don't see that. And often. I know, obviously, I'm using an extreme example, but I mean, I'm closer to Josh on this, not because of numbers or anything, but I'm closer to Josh this because, like, I can just like I don't know why we think Ryan Tannehill is such a stable QB. He has been he he, he was terrible years in Miami. He moved over to Tennessee. He was likely only really good because of the system, right? Like he's, he's definitely not the best quarterback. I can see him being out, being beat out by Malik Willis. And I probably should have seen that coming anyway. And I'm not saying he's already going to, but I can definitely see it happening as early as this year. And to get a guy like him in the second round to be able to move, move him. Like I do wish that I, and I, I more, it's more, I just faded him from the second round and I probably, I'd be much more comfortable taking him there right now and I should have I feel like I should have been back then as well before we move on would you Chris would you still take a guy like Wandale over Malik Willis in the second round of a rookie draft yeah definitely I mean it's just all about you know odds to hit you know that's what I would go back to and you don't care about Wandale's size no I don't care because I mean like we were saying earlier players are getting smaller you know if Wandale, okay, Wandale's 5'8", Jalen Waddle and Elijah Moore are 5'9". If he was one inch taller, he would be a first-round pick in rookie drafts. His analytical profile is pristine. He does not miss a single mark. He was drafted 2.11 by a new GM, new head coach. Like, they came in and they picked their guy, you know. I think that he it has a very, very good chance of hitting and I don't care about his size because we've seen small players fail, but we have not seen small players with a profile as good as his exist. So he's just, he's very new. There's not data to back up that he'll miss because of his size. I think that if you look at size alone, you'll see a lot of misses, but size plus his production is very rare. I like it. I think that does it. Is that it for news and notes? I want to say one thing about Malik Willis real quick. Also, please. So with Willis, I was just real quick looking at just quarterbacks drafted in the third or fourth round since 2012. Um, they have about an 18% hit rate of being 17 or more points per game in the first three seasons. And I don't know if I, I, I mean, it's a 20%, essentially 20% hit rate in the middle of the second round, you know, in rookie drafts. I want to be aiming for more than that. The average hit rate in the second round of rookie drafts is around 40%. So I don't know. I just don't see why I'd take a player that I have a 20% chance of hitting versus a Wandale who I have, you know, closer to like an 80% chance of hitting. So that's just, that's where I go out with those two. Cool. Hey, while we have you here and you have your fancy spreadsheets out, how do you feel about David Bell? David Bell, I really like. I don't really care about wide receiver athleticism. Yep. I mean, David Bell is a you know really good prospect. Uh, he has really good production. He is the wide receiver seven of the class in my model, and I definitely drafted a lot of David Bell in the mid second. I feel like that was kind of a ridiculous price. Yep. I mean, taking I couldn't imagine taking Christian Watson over him, and that was like consensus. Yeah. Billy and I had him as wide receiver seven also, and he was one of those guys that like. Malik was there and Bell was there kind of about the same spot often enough that David Bell was the guy that was ending up on my roster, like pretty much every single time. Yeah. I mean, I have David Bell as a, you know, 44% chance to hit. So. Awesome. Wow. He, he looks good in preseason. I'll tell you what, he looks a lot bigger in the NFL than he looked in college. I swear. Like sometimes that gets me when I'm watching their film, I'm like David Bell <laughs> looked really small in college. He don't look that small in the NFL. Uh, when he was getting those Devontae Adams costs, I was like, I don't see that at all. Because a lot of people were talking about yeah. David, everybody, of course. <laughs> David yeah. Bell, Devontae Good producer, Adams, slow 40. Devontae That's, yeah, Devontae Adams. Um, yeah. Who's Jarvis Landry? <laughs> yeah. Yep, Jarvis Landry. <clears throat> um, okay. 
So this next one's a little little off base from Dynasty, I think, but I'm wondering if we can bring some of the principles to Dynasty, if that's possible. I know, Chris, that you you started with redraft, right? So that's definitely a base of, of your knowledge. I'm sure best ball is something you've gotten into as well, right? So a lot I, I hear this a lot, and I don't know if a lot of people know what it means or or I've ever heard it before, but week 17 correlation, right? I've heard this a lot over the last year or two, and I thought it was really interesting because I never... I don't think I ever really thought about it or knew about it. I didn't know if it was a thing before best ball. I know it's like a best ball strategy, but week 17 correlation, as I understand it, is drafting players who are likely to perform at an elite rate in week 17. But maybe I'm maybe I maybe this isn't what they mean, but I also think it means like later in the season as well, right? In the last couple weeks of the season. I know in best ball it's important because week 17 I think a lot of the scoring is like done in week 17 or a lot of the the winning scoring is done in that week but either way do you have anything for us on on week 17 correlation and how we can apply it maybe to redraft or to dynasty in any way week 17 correlation is definitely a big thing in best ball in the tournaments not necessarily your traditional 12 person best ball league this is because you know you'll have a you'll have a field of 100,000 entries and then that gets cut down in what they call a shootout schedule, week 15, 16, 17. So then once you get to week 17, you know, you maybe have a thousand players out of that 100,000. So if you think about that, that's, you know, like a 0.1% outcome just to make it there. And then to beat those other teams, you need to have what they call week 17 correlation, where that's having players on your roster that not only face each other, but if one of them has a good game, then the other is more likely to have a good game as well. So like, for example, Buffalo plays Cincinnati week 17. So if you draft Josh Allen, you're going to want, you know, Josh Allen's stacks, of course, because you're playing basketball, you're going to want to have Stephon Diggs. But then you're also going to want to have like T Higgins because, you know, that's going to be a high scoring game, probably a shootout. So if Buffalo is throwing a lot of passes, scoring a lot of points, then since he's going to need to come back and score a lot of points. So you need to hit your max output. So Buffalo has a good game. Cincy players are probably going to have a good game. That's why you want to get the players on the opposite side of that spectrum. And then I actually do think we can apply this maybe more so in redraft than in dynasty, because, you know, you're picking your players for the season dynasty. You're kind of, you know, you have what you have, but you can definitely make like um, LA, the chargers, for example, have a really good shootout schedule. They play against Tennessee uh, week 15, which is, you know, that's all right. Tennessee could have a good offense by the end of the year. You know, Robert Woods, Traylon Burks, they, you know, they could score a lot of points. That could be a high scoring game. And then they go on to play against the Colts who have a much better offense. You know, they're looking good. That could be another high scoring game. And then they play the Rams. So for your fantasy playoffs in your redraft league, which are the most important weeks, ha- just having those chargers players might give you a better chance to in- make it through each week just because they're having good games. I love that. That's exactly how I was kind of thinking of it. And of course, in Dynasty, like you're not going to try to make trades or moves just to make this happen. But I'm wondering, I've been thinking about this since I've kind of heard the term and I'm, and because it makes sense, like this stuff does make sense. And I'm wondering if you're a top end contender, like, you know, your team is, is really going to, you know, make the playoffs almost guaranteed, obviously anything can happen. But if you're, you know, year before you were in, in the championship and you know that you're going to make a strong run again. I'm wondering if, you know, you're trying to make moves anyway. You like players that are on these teams. If you kind of look at these matchups towards the end of the year and make sure that you, you can, you know, if you're going to make a move, maybe make it for that elite player that's on that team that's going to have that correlation. And I just wonder if it's something that in micro situations you can apply and say, hey, like this is maybe the direction I should go and stack these up if possible for those playoff runs. Um, it's just an interesting thing that I definitely never thought about before. And, and I feel like you can bring across the formats if, if you want to. Yeah, that's exactly right. The mic- micro, like you said, it, it's small scale. It's not something you're going to focus on or, you know, build multiple trades around. But one other team I do want to point out is Denver. They play against Arizona week 15. That, you know, should be a high scoring game. Then they play against the Rams week 16. That's another, you know, two high powered offenses. And then they go against the Chiefs week 17. I mean, those are three top-notch shootout games. So, like, yeah, if you're going to trade, you know, for Cortland Sutton, you know, Russell Wilson, Albert O, you know, those guys are going to be – should be scoring a lot of points in those final three weeks. Yeah, as a contender, if I already have Russell Wilson, 
this whole entire offseason, like I'd be trying to figure out how do I can get Cortland Sutton for a value onto my team. Not just for that reason, but you know, you can stack him. It's it just like it's it all fits into this nice box of like tons of production together, late in season, when I need it, all that stuff. And and again, it's those micro situations because it works, right? Like Cortland Sutton was a guy who you could get at values at times and and wasn't gonna you weren't gonna spend up on and all those different things. But again, yeah, I, I think about this sometimes because you know I, we have a lot of teams and you're looking at them in this way and you're like, how can I make this this juggernaut even better? And and these are I think little things that if you have a team that's set up, like you can apply these principles to it and and kind of take advantage, get an edge on your opponents um, in certain ways. Yeah, and I think people underrate stacking in season long too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's reducing the number of outcomes you need. Like if you have Justin Herbert, Justin Herbert throws a passing touchdown. Is it more likely for Keenan Allen to catch a touchdown or for Rashad Bateman to catch a touchdown? <laughs> you know, it's more yeah. likely that Keenan Allen is going to catch a touchdown. <laughs> so anything you can do to just increase your odds of scoring the most points possible needs to be taken advantage of. I love that. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Let's uh, let's hop into the last bit here. We're going to talk about some trades and non-trades. Both of these are are mine. One of them I'm sharing with Josh because it's a trade we made. Uh, be gentle because people have been, been <clears throat> ripping into this trade, but but I think it's I think it's pretty fair. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. So I traded away Stefan Diggs. All right, no, I'm no, sorry. You traded for Stefan Diggs. <laughs> I traded for Stefan Diggs, and I sent away James Conner, 24 first, and. Daniel Bellinger tight end for the New York Giants. There's some context here, I think, but let's just get, I guess, initial thoughts. Uh, Chris, why don't you jump in? Yeah, I'm just really glad that you switched the way that was because I was prepared to tell you how great <laughs> of a move it was to get Diggs. And then you were saying you traded away Diggs. And, oh, no, Billy. But no, that's a good trade. I mean, James Conner, he might not. I mean, he could score 16 points per game this year and be an RB1. But I mean, it's not unlikely that he doesn't and then if he doesn't this year even if he does after that we have no idea what he's going to forgive us in 2023 we know that stefan diggs is going to be the number one wide receiver on the bills with josh allen as his quarterback but then 24 first i mean yeah it's a first round pick but you know it's in 2024 so we're going to get 2022 of diggs 2023 of diggs 2024 of diggs you know, before that player's really even producing and then Bellinger's just a toss in. So yeah, I Diggs is by far the best asset there. I like Diggs. Yeah, when I saw this uh, trade come across, you know, I'm in the same league with them. Hmm. And uh, I was just like, man, I wish I could have got Diggs for that. <laughs> yeah, that's how I'd be feeling a thousand. Uh, that's so that's fine, weird. But uh, I don't need Connor to produce the entire season. I need Connor to put together three or four good games. Yeah. Why? So you can move him? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's that, I mean, that's fair. If you can do that, I mean, that's great. And honestly, like I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I thought I was giving up too much here personally. Like it, like in, I think if you put it in any calculator on, on value wise, it's going to be close. Not that calculators matter. I'm just saying, if you put it in any calculator, I think the value is going to be close on James Conner on the 24th first, but my team, like contextually, like this is a really tough move for my team to make. I have Christian McCaffrey and Melvin Gordon. That's it. Otherwise. Right. So to, to move off of James Conner felt really tough for me, first of all, because it puts me in a, in a sticky situation, especially if CMC were to get injured. And then that 24 first is going to gain a good bit of steam, I think, because my team is fucking old, like old as shit. And, and so, <laughs> I, I, so I think by 24, that first is going to look a lot more desirable. Uh, if you can move James Conner, that'll, that'll definitely help, help your side of the deal, I think, in general. And like you, like you said, a lot, of this deal, a lot of this trade has to, people have to understand the context of it. You have an older team that's in win-now mode. I have a much younger team that isn't going to compete for probably, realistically, two years. Right, so you said you wanted to sell James Conner. What, what are you going to sell James Conner for? I mean, of course, it depends what kind of numbers he's putting up, but... Right, let's say he's averaging, you know, 18 points per game in the first, you know, part of the season. What are you, you going to try and sell James Conner for? First, second year production, productive running back and a second. So, so like, you're saying, like, um, what is that class? Like, not like DeAndre's, you know, DeAndre's just way too much. Maybe Michael Carter in a second? 
I, I, I almost think like, I, I think he'd be shooting yeah. higher, but I wonder if JK Dobbins doesn't come back as soon as you, as soon as people like, if you could go Dobbins in a second or something like that, if he's like really smashing at 18 points per game, like that's pretty valuable for a contender or, or any, anybody really, I guess that thinks they have a shot. I don't know. Ramondre Stevenson in, in a couple of seconds. Say Ramondre. Yeah, yeah. Ramondre Stevenson in a second or a second and a third or whatever you can get there. A couple. And you know, I'm high on Stevenson. So if I'm able to pull that off to me, it'll be a home run. Yeah, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to expect. I just want to, yeah, that's if you're if that's your goal. Yeah, that's that's a good deal. No, I'm fine with that. I need a, another young producing running back that I could have on my team for a couple, good couple of years and rebuild up my draft capital. I lost a lot of my assets and trades, and I don't know. To me, it made sense. All right, well, I'm gonna go ahead and win this league and uh, nah. come back to you later. <laughs> No, I honestly, like, again, we, no, no. I mean, me and, me and Josh literally went back and forth on this a couple of times. And I was like, both of us at the end of it didn't feel great about it. And I do think that makes a good trade, right? Like whatever the outside people think, I think at the end of the day, if you're both like, wow, I felt like I gave up a little bit more than I wanted to there, then it, eh, it's a good trade for both parties. So we'll see how that works out. This next one is a non-trade. It didn't get done, but I probably could get it done in a flash. CD Lamb for Chris Olave, Romeo Dobbs, and a 23 first. And this one would be either one of them are probably projected to be in, you know, the, the top six range, let's say. Uh, I have two of these 23 first. I'm a, a massive contender. Like the team is just loaded. How do y'all feel about this? CD Lamb for Chris Olave, Romeo Dobbs, and a 23 first. If you're loaded, I'm going to try to get Lamb on my team. First be damned. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm personally holding. Okay. Okay. You're holding on to Chris Olave. Yeah. The package side. Yep. Okay. I take the CD Lamb side. Uh, I'm I'm pretty high on CD Lamb. I feel like he's my dynasty wide receiver five. Um, I could see him like let's say he captures a 25% target share this year with no real competition. I mean, he's gonna be, you know, cemented consensus dynasty wide receiver five. And he's still really young. On the other side of the trade. I see three unknown assets. And on the other side of the trade, I see a young, good, potentially elite asset. Um, I'm usually a fan of just getting the best player in the deal, and that's CD Lamb here. So I would take the CD Lamb side, but it's close. Definitely close. All right. All right. That's interesting. I'm going to have to go back and send it, send an offer <laughs> then. Uh, no, not that. Like I've already, I, I've kind of been higher on CD Lamb over the past few weeks even past month or so I, I did a startup it was a one QB startup shame on me I know uh where I, I snagged him I think at 105 and it, the team ended up looking amazing at the end of it but that just shows you how high I am on him so maybe I already am kind of where you guys are at and and should have just accepted the deal but I'm gonna try to get more or let or give up less here so let me see what I can do um that's interesting man CD Lamb his like he's he's got a meteoric rise and he hasn't really done it yet though has he no, not really. But that's the, you know, why, you gotta, why, why are you so confident that he will make that jump? It's not really about me being confident that he will. It's, I think that it's, it's within the realm of possibilities and there's a reasonable chance it happens. And if it does happen, I mean, his, like you said, he will rise quickly in value. I mean, if you have a 23 year old player that, you know, is a top six wide receiver in redraft, let's say, I mean, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good player. Yeah. I mean, we know that targets are earned by talented wide receivers. And when you look, I'm a Cowboys fan, so I'll be honest here. There's a lot of targets on that team. And he's by far the most talented uh, receiver on that team. He's not competing with Amari. I'm not saying that he's going to get Amari's targets. I'm just saying that he's not competing with anybody that's on the same level as Amari. Michael Gallup will be back, but Michael Gallup will probably still get the same target share he's had the last couple of years. It just what it is, it is what it is. Next guy in the team is going to be Dalton Schultz. There's a lot of targets to go around, and he's by far the best earner on the team. Like I said before, I think we said this last week when I was asked about whether or not Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb could both finish top 12 or top 24. I said, that's just, no, it's just not how it's going to work. They're, they're competing against each other. They're both elite talents. But a player like Amari, who's really, really good at earning targets, he's gone. And there's nobody else on the team that is able to do that. They're not just going to throw to Tolbert because Tolbert's there. They're going to throw to the guy who's who's best. 
I really do think CD Lamb is going to see a shit ton of targets this year. Yeah, I mean, he's my wide receiver five in redraft, you know, right under Stephon Diggs, right under Jamar Chase, you know, right above T. Higgins. I mean, he should be valued, you know, not necessarily with Jamar Chase in Dynasty, but, you know, he should definitely be right with T. Higgins, right with Stephon Diggs in Dynasty. So, yeah, I mean, he's a top-tier Dynasty wide receiver. I like it. All right, looks like I'm going to go make a blockbuster at some point here. All right, that's fun. Okay, I mean, I think that's all I got for Chris. Does anybody have anything else for him? No, man, just want to say thanks for coming on. I, I love hearing from guys like you, uh, you know, similar thought processes, like seeing – kind of where you had some of your guys ranked this year and looking at how Billy and I have been trying to build how we are looking at the wide receivers and uh, seeing that we're not too crazy that we're on par with you know where you're at and uh yeah just had a great time talking to you yeah it's always nice to confirm your biases yes that love that part <laughs> yeah if, if you came on here uh saying things that I you know didn't confirm my biases I probably would take you off but <laughs> get out of here chris where can people find out find your stuff and learn some more about your models so you can find me on twitter at chris miles 1017 and you can find me as a writer on you know dynastyfootballfactory.com and yeah if you have any you know redraft help you want or dynasty best ball whatever you just hit my dms i'm always down to talk and help people out awesome chris thanks so much man really appreciate it we'll get you back on here in season at some point we'll talk a little bit more about your model and, and see after we see some of the uh the successes or the failures uh, of, of the rookie class <laughs> i think i have a haircut we'll, that we'll day yeah. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate you joining in uh josh you want to get us out of here thanks for giving this week's episode of dynasty underdog listen make sure you follow us on twitter at dynasty underdog at just your iff at willie beeman dff and at josh on goldberg and check out our patreon at patreon.com slash dynasty underdog mm-hmm.